0: Welcome back to Crime Capsule. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. If you're just joining us, we're delighted to have you as we continue our series on haunted American history. Regular listeners of the show may remember our interview with Lisa Livingston Martin last summer, who, at the tail end of our conversation, let slip that she was not only a trained historian, but a paranormal investigator as well, of the area of southwestern Missouri, where route 66 passes through places like joplin and springfield this week we're picking up on that thousand mile thread taking the mother road all the way to its end on the west coast guided by another trained paranormal investigator historian brian clune brian is a prolific author and researcher with over half a dozen books to his name most recently California's Haunted Route 66, newly published by the History Press. A detailed account of lost settlements, haunted mines, and ghost towns where the majority of the residents are. Well, do I even need to say it? Brian, thank you so much for joining us on Crime Capsule. Before we get started, I just want to let our listeners in on a little secret that you are recording from a most unusual location. Would you tell us where exactly you are?
1: Uh, Right now, I am in the CPO lounge directly under the helicopter landing pad of the battleship USS Iowa uh, here in the Los Angeles Harbor. That is amazing. (laughs) Yeah, I've been here for 10 years, and uh, don't plan on going anywhere. I mean, let's face it, I retired and there's no better way to spend a day than uh, walking around on a historic battleship, especially one that just happens to have a little bit of ghostly activity as well.
0: Well, my father was a Navy man, so you're making him proud for sure right now. But you are our first guest to actually come to us from a known hotspot for paranormal activity. What kind of hauntings are we talking about above aboard the Iowa?
1: You know, um, we we don't really talk much about it. Um, although, to be honest, um, I have a whole chapter about the Iowa in my uh, Haunted San Pedro book. Uh, mm-hmm. But I worked really closely with the ship. Um, and one of the reasons we don't talk a whole lot about it is we still have volunteer crew members on board who were on the ship uh, in 1989 when turret two exploded. Mm-hmm. So we're very careful about dredging up painful subjects but a couple of the odd experiences I've had even though I'm a volunteer I work what's called camp battleship and for that I'm paid fire watch so I actually work from uh, 10 o'clock at night to 6 30 in the morning and uh, I basically patrol the ship and I was up in the forward plot which is uh, just behind the bridge of the ship and uh I won't go into the whole story, but um, I was a little on the tired side from having to go up and down the ladders like 20 or 30 times. Mm. And I'm sitting in the captain's ready room, which uh, is all red lighting. Mm -hmm. The forward plot, however, is regular lighting. As as I'm sitting there, I'm noticing a bunch of uh, shadows uh, moving on the wall. And Mm -hmm. I was kind of like, oh, okay." So I apparently missed some guests. And I go out there and there is nobody in plot, literally mm. nobody in there. And I turn, look at the wall where the shadows were, and the shadows are still there. And the, the shadows themselves were obvious as um, human figures. And the only right. place they could have been coming from was where I was standing. But to be honest with you, at that point, I was so tired. I just kind of looked around and said, you know what, guys? I'm too tired, but thanks for scaring the you know what out of me. And I just went back and sat down <laughs> on the couch in the captain's ready room. Um, you know, and it, it's things like that, that that happened on the ship. Um, when they were getting the Iowa prepared to come down to San Pedro to be towed down here, the ship was up in uh, Richmond, California, which is the uh, San Francisco Bay Area. Right. And we had a crew member up there who was in the sail locker, and he was coming up the vertical ladder and went to slip off of the rung. And he felt somebody push him back up onto the ladder. As he turned to thank whoever it was, he realized, oh, wait a minute, I'm too high up for there to be anybody pushing me up and I'm by myself. Hmm. So the the spirits on the ship are anything but frightening. Uh, Most of them are just extremely helpful. And I think you'll find that with a a few of the uh, Haunted Navy ships. Uh, It's the same with uh, the USS Hornet, uh, which I'm going to be writing about in one of my new books, Haunted Northern California. Um, And a couple of the other ships, uh, the the museum ships that we have here.
0: Well, if uh, during the course of this next hour you see anything unusual hear anything unusual or need to go check something out we will understand and we will be right here when you get back
1: yeah you'll know in advance because i'm I'm gonna let out a a terrifying scream so
0: yeah okay all right that's fair Well, Brian, tell us about yourself. You have a long career in paranormal research and you are the author already of at least six books on the topic by my count. I'm sure there are probably a couple more in there that I missed. Uh, How did you get your start and do you in fact sleep?
1: Um, I sleep every once in a while when needed or when I just sort of pass out because I've been going too far. But I got my start a long time ago, um, probably when I was about uh, 11 or 12, we mm. started to realize that, uh, my father was uh, hanging around the house. He had passed away when I was just turning three and there had always been these weird things that went on. And we started to realize when I was a, like a 10 or 11 years old, that it was my father and, uh, We found out that he was basically just waiting around for my mother to pass away. And once she passed, everything in the house stopped. It was like uh, the on-off switch was, it clicked to off. Mm. But I, I hate to use the word professionally, but professionally, I've been doing it since about 05, when my oldest son aged out of the Boy Scouts and we were kind of drifting apart. And I was looking for something to sort of reconnect with him. Mm-hmm. And I asked him, "You know, is there something we could do?" And he goes, "Let's go ghost hunting." I said, "How about if I take you to a, uh, a psychiatrist?" Because at that time, I was like, "Okay, yeah, the, the ghost hunting really." I, even though I'd grown up in a haunted house, it wasn't—it was mildly haunted. Well, anyway, he convinced me. Um, I found Planet Paranormal, and uh, the rest is history. I, I was having so much fun with. Uh, Uh, my team, it was basically just the four of us. And we clicked to the point where we were almost like family. Mm. Um, And from there, it just kind of progressed. I started keeping notes on our investigations, uh, mainly just our home cases. And somebody was looking at what I was writing and said, have you ever thought about putting that into a book form? And I was kind of like, "Uh, you know, I've wanted to be an author for a while, but I just don't have the patience for it. Uh, then my, my wife kind of pushed me, my buddy, Bob kind of pushed me. And from there I wrote one book and I actually, it's kind of funny. I, it, it took me a year to get my first manuscript sold. And I had gotten a call from the history press to turn down the book that I had sent them. Okay. And while I was talking to the acquisitions editor, he started talking to me about the Queen Mary. And he said that he he was standing uh, across the way from the Queen Mary, and uh, one thing led to another, and he goes, "You wouldn't have to be able to write a book about the Queen Mary, would you?" <laughs> and it went actually, um, I already had started so I got that contract basically, hmm. and about fifteen minutes later, I got another call from another publisher who will not be named, mm-hmm. uh, who had accepted the book that History Press had turned down.
0: You got a twofer.
1: Yeah, I waited a year and within 15 minutes had sold two manuscripts. So I was rather happy about that.
0: Feast or famine, feast or famine. We'll take feast, won't we? Absolutely. And uh, Planet Paranormal was founded. When was that exactly?
1: Well, we well, had actually started off as Pacific Ghost Hunting Society. Okay. Uh, and then our founder and lead um, had done something that uh, we could not stomach he actually took money from a client um, and that's something we will never do Uh, we do not charge period never have never will Mm. so as soon as we found out about that my buddy bob who had just purchased planet paranormal radio which is a radio hub uh, for internet radio he said well why don't we start another team? And since uh, since I own uh, Planet Paranormal Radio, why don't we just call it Planet Paranormal? And we were like, you know what? That's a great idea. And so that's how that started. And that was back in late 07 or early 08. I can't remember exactly which, but uh, that's close enough.
0: Okay. So you've been in the business about 15 or so years, give, give or take. Or take, yeah. Okay. So we have had some discussions about... Uh, a topic very near and dear to the paranormal heart on our recent series and that topic is of course skepticism <laughs> you can't talk about one without the other we have had our first guest in our paranormal series darren edwards claim that he is a he is a skeptic but he is an open-minded skeptic
1: that means he is a true skeptic.
0: <laughs> I, th- I like to think so. Uh, he, he says he could be persuaded, but yeah. <laughs> a true skeptic always keeps an open mind. Our most recent guest, Allison Chase in Brooklyn, uh, says that she does not like ghosts at all, and she... I would prefer not to believe in them, but that her needle moved after a very bizarre, unexplainable encounter at the Stanley Hotel not too long ago. I'll let our listeners tune back into that episode to hear her tell the story in her own words. But you, Brian, I think it's probably safe to say you're on the side of there's something
1: out there. Correct me if I'm wrong. So personally, personally, I 100% believe that spirits exist. I have had way too many things happen to me to deny it. Mm. However, and this, this is going to sound a little odd, I am very skeptical about what others tell me, about mm-hmm. what others say. Mm-hmm. Being in the paranormal for as long as I have, I do know how when people want to believe so badly their mind can actually create things happening. Uh, Whether they're actually physically happening or not, their mind is telling them that it is. It's one of these things where I hear folks, especially like on Facebook, in the paranormal community, on Saturday, they go to a haunted location. And on Sunday, they're saying that they have never been to a more haunted location. Oh my God, so much stuff happened. This is the most haunted location on the planet. Until next Saturday when the next place they go is the most haunted place they've ever...
0: Again, right.
1: When that starts happening, you, you have to start thinking to yourself, okay, uh, yeah, it's not that prevalent. I do believe, but it is nowhere near as, um, to use the word again, prevalent, as most people um, try and put forth.
0: Sure, and there's probably an argument as well to be made about the... Uh, rise in exaggeration in the digital age, um, which is kind of a separate topic, but you see the influence of people always trying to intensify their experiences in order to get the views or the likes or the attention or what have you. And that's, that's feeding in as well. Um, Yet the reason I ask is as I read through California's haunted route 66 I was very taken by the balance that you struck between historical documentation of these particular events and your own investigations. And so what I'd like to do is engage that balance. Uh, I want to ask, first of all, about the origins of the book. After all your other volumes, how did this particular one come to be?
1: So this one was rather interesting A friend of mine, Debbie Branning, who also writes for uh, History Press, had been working on Arizona's Haunted Route 66. Mm -hmm. Now, if I remember correctly, that would was the third in a series that the History Press has put out. Uh, They've put out Haunted or Illinois' Haunted Route 66, and I believe Missouri's Haunted Route 66. That's right. And. Because I'm California-based, my acquisitions editor, uh, who I believe you've had on the show, Lori Krill, Mm -hmm. hi, Lori, Mm -hmm. had contacted me about possibly writing a book about Route 66 for California. And what I thought was so interesting about that is my wife and I were driving back from Texas. I, I had a speaking engagement in Jefferson, Texas, and we had decided to come back on Route 66. And I was actually driving down Route 66 just east of Seligman, Arizona, when I got the call about writing a book about California's Route 66. So I sort of figured, okay, this this was meant to be Mm. and immediately accepted. And I had so much fun with the book. It's incredible.
0: You have a lot of cases. You have a really high number of cases in this book. How did you find them all?
1: Basically driving the route. My wife and I love road trips and Being an author, especially of nonfiction, gives me a lot of um, advantages to take road trips. And the best thing about them is, is if I'm writing about them, I can also deduct these road trips off of my taxes.
0: (laughs) Useful. um,
1: uh So, you know, that's one of the advantages. But um, I sometimes embarrass my wife Uh, we'll be in a location and I'll be walking in. I'll just be kind of looking around and someone will come up and say, can I help you? And I'll say, is the place haunted? And my wife will be like, oh, dear God, he did it again. Here he goes again. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And uh, it's gotten to the point where she won't even walk into a location with me at Mm. the same time. She either goes in first or waits until I'm deep in conversation so she can slip past and doesn't have to admit that she knows me. So it's fair. It's, That's uh, fair. That's yeah. fair. I
0: mean, you know, let me ask you this. You've been in the paranormal investigation business, as you said, for about 15 or so years. In this particular volume, I'm sure you have been collecting notes and bits and pieces kind of all along the way, but how long did it take you to compile the cases in California's Haunted Route 66?
1: Well, I had actually like with Calico. Um, I had already written about Calico in Mm -hmm. uh, a previous book, uh, Ghosts and Legends of Calico. So that one was actually pretty easy. I already had all of the historical data I needed. uh, So basically that one was already done. All I had to do was rewrite it for the new book. Where the Aztec Hotel, my wife and I and a buddy of mine, we went out to the Aztec like four or five times. Mm -hmm. Now the hotel's not open, but the uh, bar and grill is. So, you know, we had the added pleasure of, you know, talking to the manager while having some good food and some cocktails. Sure, of course. With uh, Oro Grande, the town is so small that it really didn't take a lot to do uh, the personal research Mm -hmm. as far as that goes. There's only like five or six uh, places that are um, still open there. Mm -hmm. Now, the two antique stores, my wife and I had actually been going in there just about every time we drove Route 66. The, the first time that uh, my wife and I drove Route 66, we were on a trip with my uh, daughter. Uh, she was uh, on break from college, and we thought, yeah, let's just take a Route 66 trip. So we had stopped at a couple different places, and naturally, me being me, I had to ask if they were haunted. Hmm. So I already knew the location, or at least some of the locations that had some paranormal activity. So when doing research for the book, I would actually just stop in and talk to the people, get their number. Uh, I would go home and, uh, you know, give them calls or, you know, just say, hey, can you send me a, a story on the Internet uh, through email or whatever? Uh, so, you know, I, and I'm one of those people who prefer talking rather than just email or text. Sure. Um, I like the personal connection rather than the um, I, I'll say medicinal
0: uh, Can be a little stilted, sure.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So that goes back to, you know, need more road trips. Uh, like with golfs, <laughs> we could barely find golfs. Most of it is now non existent. Mm. Uh, there's very few buildings there. Um, and I just, we just happened to stop in and went, oh my God, we found it. And so I was talking to the owner of the uh, museum there. And that's where I got a lot of the stories as far as the uh, cemetery, uh, things like that. Ludlow. Uh, was another one where we stopped in and uh, uh, we would eat at the Ludlow Cafe. Because we, we like to bring business to, to these locations that need them. Yeah. And it, if you'll notice that my books, I do put the more well-known historic locations in there that you know everybody has read about. But I also put more of the smaller locations that people wouldn't even think about stopping at. And one of the reasons for that is you get some great stories, uh, especially about the paranormal from these locations. And it makes people aware that, hey, maybe we should stop in because they have some cool stuff. So it, it helps the location, it helps the readers, and it makes for, for a good story.
0: Well, let's let's get on the road together then. Uh, earlier this summer, we did speak to Lisa Livingston Martin, who wrote the Book on uh, Missouri's wicked Route 66, and she's in the paranormal uh, field as well. Um, in our conversation with Lisa, you know, one of the things that came up was that tension between the road as the place of escape to safety and the road as the place itself of danger. They're sort of always toggling back and forth uh, between the two, right? And I think of this because you open your book by saying that Route 66's entry into California comes at one of the deadliest places in all of the high desert, which is Needles. Why was Needles so perilous for travelers passing through?
1: One word, heat. Hmm. Now, when when you're in Arizona, uh, coming from Oatman, which it would basically be one of the last towns that uh, people would... Uh, have to drive through on their way to uh, Santa Monica, you just now enter into, let's say, the depths of uh, the Mojave Desert.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, the Mojave Desert has been classified as the hottest place on the planet. Now, the reason for that is because the Death Valley mm-hmm. is in the Mojave Desert. Mm-hmm. So folks driving through, especially in the early days, like a uh, picture a model A, because folks were driving model A's into California, you know, looking looking for a better life. And they would be like, Okay, we just got over the Seat Greaves Pass, which it, a lot of times they had to drive up backwards because it had a lower gear. Mm-hmm. And we've just crossed the Colorado, we're in California, the land of milk and honey, we're we're safe. And all of a sudden they hit hundred and ten degree temperatures yeah with no air conditioning sometimes no roof over them because they're in convertibles and back then let's face it the cars were not exactly the most dependable so if you you overheated your engine you're probably going to overheat yourself and back then you did not have a highway patrol you did not have AAA you did not have you know any recourse other than to try and walk to get safety and a lot of folks didn't make it. Um, and that's that's what I meant as far as one of the deadliest places on the planet.
0: Yeah. It's funny you should mention Model A's. I have a good friend here in town, here in New Orleans, who owns one. And about six months ago, I got to take a ride in his Model A. We took it out one Saturday morning. And it is beautiful, lovingly restored, sort of a pet project of his family over the years. But Lord, is it a hot box. And you're right. The, there is a no escaping the elements when you're in there you are being cooked in an oven whether you like it or not and i can right. see i can see the danger there now one of the earliest stops on your tour as we enter california we're going to travel from east to west here is amboy and you say that amboy is named because it was one of the very first in a series of towns that as the railroad worked itself west, they sort of gained their names alphabetically. And on the surface, you write, Amboy seems like a sleepy little sort of peaceful, um, you know, not, not a huge settlement, but, you know, very sort of quiet and genteel. But not all is as it seems in Amboy, is it?
1: No, and it's one of the things that I found really odd. Um, My wife and I had stopped into Amboy, I'd say, four or five times. Mm. Now, just as an FYI, Amboy right now is extremely hard to get to. The bridges on either side on Route 66 have been washed out. Mm. So the only way to get to Amboy now, if you're traveling on Route 66 would be to get off of the 40 freeway. Because at one point, what, uh, as you as you pass Goffs, mm-hmm. it'll take you around to the 40 freeway because you cannot go any further on Route 66 because the bridges are washed out. So you have to get onto Interstate 40, get off at Kelbaker Road, drive 13 miles down to Route 66 and then 11 miles west to Amboy. Okay, And then you have to reverse yourself if you want to go back, so you can also get to Twenty Nine Palms the same way. Although it's it's most people don't do that unless uh, you're part of the military.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now I don't know if it's an urban myth. I'm not really sure what to call it. To be honest with you, uh, has sprung up around Amboy as far as people like satanic cults uh, coming to the area and um, waylaying people to. Using in rituals and things like that. Hmm. I really couldn't find a whole lot as far as what these rituals were used for or whether they were like human sacrifice rituals. Mm-hmm. But there are a bunch of stories about people disappearing in the Amboy area. And the one story I have in there is about a Marine who was basically ambushed, although he had used his military skills to realize something was wrong, and they, mm-hmm. they actually missed catching this gentleman.
0: This is someone you spoke to firsthand. This is a, a, an account you had directly from the individual?
1: Um, it's not directly from the individual, but I found about 15 different things written by him. Okay. So I was pretty sure that it wasn't just an internet hoax. And that's one of the things that I am very careful of. Mm -hmm. If I think that it is an internet hoax, I will actually put it in there that this could be you know, uh, just an internet story. And then I'll put something like, but it's an interesting story, which is why I put it in the book. Uh, I do not want to ever mislead my readers.
0: your account includes some other kind of suspicious activity in the area, you have a church where some strange things were recorded. You have a school and some swing sets that seem to move independently on a windless days, which is unusual. Um, even a, an area where photos of blood were found on the walls uh, that was not immediately visible to the naked eye, but they were in a photograph. It seems like Amboy is fairly fairly well populated with, with unusual occurrences.
1: It, it, it does seem so. The, I was trying to get a hold of the owner, um, and I, I, Okura, if I remember correctly, uh, but he never uh, contacted me because I just wanted to double check some of the stories. And then a lot of the stories actually come from the folks who actually work at Roy's Motel. Now, there's not much left of Amboy. Basically, the only thing that's open is Roy's Motel, although the motel itself is not functioning as a motel. If that makes sense. Sure. Um, it's just sort of a, a tourist attraction. Uh, Way
0: station, so to speak.
1: Exactly. And I'm pretty sure most everybody, if they if they see the Roy's Motel sign, have gone, oh, I've seen that before. It's it's one of the most iconic along Route 66, even though it only uh, came into existence in the like the 1940s. Hmm. So, but the swings, I have actually seen that myself. Really? Uh, my, wa- my wife and I were there and uh i was kind of walking around she was uh in the uh, little gift store which is now well it's it's the gas station but it's now a gift store and i was just kind of walking around and uh i I went over to the school and i was noticing that the swings are moving and i'm thinking well that's kind of weird it's the middle of uh summer it's about 106 there's not a drop of wind anywhere Hmm. and yet the swings were just going you know just going back and forth so um I didn't immediately think paranormal, but uh, you know it was kind of like one of those weird things. It's like, all right, I don't know why they're doing that,
0: but uh, <laughs> yeah. You know. Any chance you were able to grab a little video of it and and kind of submit it for um, analysis, or were we not that lucky? No,
1: unfortunately, I wish I had. Um, I'm one of those people who don't really think about grabbing my phone <laughs> when I when I see stuff like that. Yeah. I'm too busy with my mouth open going, ah, huh? so. <laughs> You know, I, I really need to get better at doing that, though.
0: Well, uh, there's always room for uh, innovations in our methods, isn't there? So one of the next stops on the tour is actually a fairly significant stop, and we'll we'll spend a minute here, uh, is Calico. And you have actually written an entire book on Calico already. Uh, you included some of the accounts in this particular volume, but it is the remarkable story of a largely dead town brought back to life, but whose primary occupants still seem to be the dead. Tell us, what is the story of Calico? I I was really taken by it.
1: Okay, so um, Calico actually sprung up by, this is going to sound kind of weird, Walter Knott, uh, founder of Knott's Berry Farm. Of course. And uh, co-creator of the Boysenberry. By his uncle, Sheriff John King, he put the first grub stake for Calico. Mm -hmm. And Calico to this day is second only to Cerro Gordo in producing the most silver in California. Wow. And it was actually dubbed the the official Silver Rush ghost town of California, whereas Bodie is the official Gold Rush ghost town of California. Got it. And the funny thing about Calico is when when folks started to come to look for uh, their fortunes, they didn't necessarily build the town. They would literally dig holes in the side of hills and that's where they would live. There's a story of the Hyena House, which uh, actually had an ad in one of the, the papers as the most modern hotel in Calico. And this would have been say, around 1887, I would, I would assume, sometime okay. around okay. there. And it, it also advertised that once you arrived in town, transportation would be provided to the hotel. Hmm. Well, it turns out that when you showed up in Calico and you had booked the uh, hyena house hotel, mm-hmm. your transportation was a wheelbarrow. And they would literally put you up in the wheelbarrow and they would wheel you up to this hillside where your room was a hole dug in the side of a hill with canvas hanging over the hole as your privacy. And that was the most modern hotel in Calico.
0: Well, you know, some folks might protest, but uh, it works, doesn't it?
1: It did, apparently, uh, because they actually did build a whole town out in one of the most inhospitable areas that you could build a town. They literally had to uh, have all of their water shipped in. Now, in the early days, Lake Mojave still had water in it, uh, but it was drying up quick. So water was at a premium. Mm -hmm. Uh, They really didn't sell the water to make money. They just wanted people to stay in town. So they basically made a small profit off of it. um, And then people would use the um, desert coolers, if I remember correctly, uh, which was basically uh, ice melting down into a bucket. And that would help keep things cool, you know, like uh, provisions and things like that.
0: So how long did the silver rush last?
1: The rush itself started to dissipate in the early 1890s when we went off the silver standard and the, the price of silver just dropped. Uh, in in uh, Ghost of Legends of Calico, I talk about one of the presidential elections and how uh, 90 some odd percent of the people in Calico voted for one candidate over the other, because the and the candidate that won, unfortunately, is the one that put us onto the gold standard, which basically mm-hmm. started to decimate Calico. And there was one person that they knew that voted for the other guy and they ran him out of town.
0: Well, <laughs> what can you say? <laughs> Yeah. Uh, back the wrong horse. I mean, that's uh, that's going to be a problem. So at that moment, you you write that the residents began to pick up their stakes and start heading to other settlements in Southern and Central California because they knew that the writing was on the wall and the veins themselves were, were more or less tapped out by that point as well, weren't they?
1: The, they were. Um, now, some of the miners uh, moved over to uh, the town of Boron and then I'm having a metal block on the other town that's, that's very close to Calico where uh, a lot of the borax was coming from because borax at that time was on the rise and people were just making money hand over fist mm. off of the, the borax mining. Um, and even today, uh, people still know what the uh, 20 mule team borax is. Mm. But that couldn't sustain, especially when they started to uh, find larger deposits of boron uh, out in the Tonopah area of Death Valley and Nevada. So then that started to wane. Now there is, and she's an amazing woman. Um, I got a lot of my historical info from her book was a woman by the name of Lucy Lane. Mm-hmm. She had come to Calico in 1885, if I remember correctly and lived there until 1967. Wow. Then she moved up to the Virginia City area and finally passed away. But through the entire time that the town was thriving, Mm. then as it was starting to decline, then when it was completely dead, she was there keeping an eye on the town. When Walter Knott finally bought Calico and started to refurbish it, She was still there. He made sure that if she wanted to stay there, she was perfectly welcome. She became the town's greeter. And I mean, just an amazing woman. Her writing is kind of hard to get through. It's a little bit dry, but historically, it's just fantastic. And Lucy and her husband, John, uh, from what I understand, are still there looking after the town.
0: Oh, well, that's useful. Next time we go, we will be sure to... um to pay our respects. Now, that leads us, of course, to the question of why Calico earns such a coveted spot in your account, because the miners who passed away there, some of them never moved on. It was dangerous conditions, of course, and we we have to respect the, um, uh, the precariousness of any of that activity all up and down uh, California. But you write that there are a couple of locations throughout town that just... They, they never really shed uh, those presences. And that if I remember, I'm going to try to quote you here. You say that nearly every restaurant and storefront has a ghost, including the historic popcorn carts.
1: You know, I've, I've wondered about those popcorn carts. Um, yeah. I do not know why the popcorn carts uh, would be so haunted. <laughs> yeah, Now, The one that's kind of in the middle of town, right in the middle of Main Street, Mm. it's kind of up against uh, a historic building, the uh, blacksmith shop. So I'm kind of wondering whether one of the blacksmiths and uh, the blacksmith shop is not one of the original buildings, but it was uh, rebuilt Mm. uh, to look exactly like the one that was at Calico. It kind of makes me wonder whether one of the uh, blacksmiths isn't there at that cart just kind of messing with people Mm. for something to do. I'm not really sure. And then the other one, which is up at the bridge, it could be any number of people from Calico's original days. There was a young child that was said to have passed away there from, uh, I believe it was a typhoid Mm -hmm. uh, epidemic. The bridge itself was a mobile brothel, and it would show up during the summer uh, and then leave during the winter just in case there was a the flood and the wash,
0: seasonal activity makes makes sense. Seasonal
1: activity, yep. exactly. Okay, so yeah, I mean the the popcorn cards. I always got a kick out of. It's like, okay, why are the popcorn? And of course, it could just be a ghost who just loves popcorn. Uh,
0: I mean, that's the kind of ghost I think I would be. My dentist and I have had some very adult conversations about my love for popcorn, and I have been. Um, Uh, Well, suffice to say, we're at an impasse, uh, but I've started flossing (laughs) more. Now, what kind of activity do we actually see up and down sort of the main drag or in these different shop fronts? What are these spirits said to be doing?
1: One of the stories, and it's one that I love to tell, which I find so amusing that when the woman was telling me about it, I was finding it very hard not to laugh at her. Hmm. So, I had gone into the old Undertaker's shop. Shops. That's, mm. That sounds weird. It's a shop now, but it was the, the old Undertaker's building. Yeah. And uh, I had asked the lady if there was any paranormal activity uh, within the building. And she got all upset and looked me right in the face and went, why do people think that just because this is in Calico and this is an Undertaker's building, it has to be haunted? <laughs> look, look. Just because we have things that slide across the counter with nobody pushing it doesn't mean it's a ghost doing it. And just because we have things that float from that shelf to the next one doesn't mean there's a ghost in here. And I'm over here going, mm-hmm, yeah, I can see how that's just, mm, that's normal. Yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> right. You're,
0: you're sort of thinking, you're, you're sitting there and you're like, okay, 1880s Calico, definitely a center for innovation in magnetism. No.
1: Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You know. When it was all done, I just kind of looked at her. I had this little grin on my face and just said, well, yeah, thank you very much for your time. I walked outside and just started cracking up. I just could not help myself. So, I mean, th- that, was, that was the one that I will never forget. Mm. Lil's Saloon was repurposed to become Lil's. It was Dr. Rhea's uh, pharmacy and office, doctor's office. It is now a place where you can get beer, pizza, hot dogs, things like that. And it is also where the reenactors mm-hmm. who do the shootouts in town and things like that will go at the end of the day to kind of relax and talk yeah. about, you know, the fun things that they did during the day or, you know, the things that bothered them.
0: It's thirsty work reenactment. So, you know, you got exactly. to, uh, you got to watch your whistle.
1: It actually is. I actually do that myself,
2: believe it or not.
1: But the, the folks who work in LILS have heard people in there after they've closed just sitting around talking, sounding like they're drinking. So they'll go out there to, you know, see who's there, thinking that it's one of the, the uh, you know, or some of the reenactors that came in who didn't realize what time it was. And they'll find that the noise is there, but there's nobody there. So that that's one that um, I've, I've often found a little bit interesting. The Calico Print is a gift shop and they sell books and magnets and, you know, all kinds of tourist stuff. And they have a, cowboy in there that seems to like children and girls, but not men too much. Hmm. So if you're ever in there, beware of him. The R&D Fossil and Gem Shop, they believe that it is actually Sheriff John King himself that owns oh, that location. Yeah. Um, and he is very protective of the folks who work there. So, oh, and he also hates Elvis Presley. Okay. Apparently, they they were telling me that anytime Elvis Presley comes on the radio, if they are not quick enough to uh, get to the radio and turn the dial, uh, it will be turned to country music before they can even get there. Or the radio will just be switched off.
0: Now, that is a testable hypothesis.
1: Um, It is. um, And one of these days, I would love to go up there and uh, give it a shot. To yeah, be honest with you.
0: Absolutely. Now, the queen of them all in town, of course, is the Maggie Mine. And I was, I'll admit, I was a little tiny bit spooked by some of the things that you said were recorded in the Maggie Mine. Did you get a chance to go down in it yourself when you were last there?
1: Yeah, I've, I've been in the Maggie Mine quite a few times. Okay. Uh, and I did. This is maybe two, three years ago. It, it, it was a few months before um, the deadline for the book. Uh, my wife and I had gone out there and I had gone on one of the ghost walks through the Maggie mine. Hmm. Didn't really come up with any, any kind of hard evidence myself, but it was definitely interesting to hear you know, a lot of the tales that they were saying that confirmed some of the things that I had already written. Now, to be honest with you, a lot of what I had heard about the Maggie mine came from the gentleman who wrote the foreword, Bill Cook. He had been at Calico for, uh, I'd say, a good 35, 40 years before he retired. So he, he is well known for knowing what is going on there. He, he wrote a small book about the, the Calico ghosts, and uh, he was he was such a big help when I was writing about the ghost stories and things. And as an FYI, every every one of the ghost stories in the Calico book does come from one of the employees. Hmm. That's okay. Um, the, the one that I would assume might have creeped you out the most is these zombie-looking miners. How did you know? <laughs> How did you know? <laughs> I just took a wild guess. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that one's really creepy. I had originally heard that during the, Ghost Walk of the Mm Mind. Now, that is one of the stories to me that I was like, yeah, I'm sure this, I don't think this happened. Mm. It's just too kind of far-fetched. But then I started to talk to people there and in Barstow and in Daggett. Barstow is only seven miles. Daggett is only like two and a half to three miles away from Calico. And the people who have... Uh, worked at Calico who have worked in the Maggie mine at Calico. And they said, mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that we've, we've had people come running out of there screaming because they've seen them. And the, and according to these people, they were just folks that were that just there, you know, visiting from Germany or something. So, you know, it was one of those things where I was like, okay, I think it's a little far fetched, but there's so many different stories about yeah. it from so many different people that are not involved with the paranormal that, okay, I think I'll throw that in there because it's cool. Yeah.
0: I mean, that is when, when you start to get these multiple independent attestations, it does lead you to wonder a little bit. And as you say, it is still accessible. So um, our listeners who are feeling brave and feeling curious uh, have every opportunity to go and, and see for themselves. Now, before we wrap up for the week, I mean, you, you write several times throughout your book as an avid road tripper yourself, that, uh, nearly every single one of these venues in all of your cases, I mean, you, you can still, for the most part, go and take a tour or be, be shown around and, and so forth. So is there, is there any one particular method that you would recommend for our listeners? to employ or one agency that takes them? Or do you just say, throw your stuff in the car and get your Ghostbuster suit, you know, ready just in case and, and take it from there.
1: I, I just say, you know, uh, start either at Needles or in Santa Monica and just drive. There's really no reason to have to take a tour. Now there, there are some locations that do have ghost tours. Uh, the Aztec hotel in Monrovia, they do, intermittently have a, uh, a ghost walk where they will walk you through the hotel, which is not open as a hotel yet. And then, of course, Calico, they do have a town ghost walk where they walk you down Main Street. They have the uh, cemetery ghost walk and then they have the Maggie Mine ghost walk. Uh, those are a lot of fun. So, you know, if, if you see those, I, I would highly recommend, you know, the, giving it a shot just for the fun of it. But most of the locations, uh, just drive, go take a look, um, and uh, have fun.
0: Just out of curiosity, I mean, I'm going to put my cards on the table here. I would be very curious to know whether sightings are more commonly observed by solo travelers or by groups of travelers. It seems to me that groups of travelers... Um, maybe it's a little less likely, right? Maybe with solo travelers, maybe it's a little more likely, but that's just a hunch, just a shooting from the hip.
1: Well, it, it, you're, you're correct. It generally is easier as a solo traveler, although as a paranormal investigator, you never want to be alone. Fair. <laughs> you always want to have at least a partner with you, and, and that does serve two purposes. One, you, you tend not to freak out when there's somebody with you, but it also gives you somebody for validation
0: which can make a small difference as far as uh, right. credibility goes just a small difference Right. everybody out there in TV land if you go to any one of these spots and you see something or hear something we want to hear about it now next week we're going to pick right back up here with Brian Kloon and uh, resume our tour of California's Haunted Route 66 thank you so much Brian for joining us this week
1: it was my pleasure
0: thanks for listening our guest has been Brian Klune, author of California's Haunted Route 66, newly published by the History Press. To order a copy, visit your local independent bookstore, visit arcadiapublishing.com, or check out our new Crime Capsule show page at bookshop.org shop crime-capsule. Join us again next week for the rest of our conversation with Brian as our series on the paranormal in American history... ...continues. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with Arcadia Publishing and The History Press and is a member of the Killer Podcasts Network. Thanks as always to our producer, Bill Huffman, our production director, Bridget Coyne, audio engineer, Ian Douglas, and our executive producers, Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. To learn more about Evergreen offering shows in every genre